Good morning, church. I hope you guys are doing well. I miss you and I wish that we could be together physically, uh, but as we're still in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, uh, I'm at least thankful that we're able to worship God together yeah, as we're disconnected, but kind of connected together through the internet in our own homes. I know that for most of us, there's probably a longing going on right now, just wishing that things would get better, waiting for the day that this whole coronavirus thing is going to be done um, for reasons big and small, just that uh, th things as small as, man, we just wish we could get our lives back into to some semblance of what we were used to and being able to hang out with people the way that we did before and, and all that kind of stuff, maybe having in-person classes again. but. Uh, there's also bigger things of realizing that uh, this virus is really creating a lot of problems in people's lives and ending a lot of lives. And with all of that, it creates in us this, this hope and this expectation that things are going to get better at some time. We desire for it. We long for it. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the first sermon that we did on, on this online format, I was saying I believe that God is a master of taking unfortunate circumstances and using them for good and teaching us how to grow. And I think that this idea of waiting patiently for something to be restored or for something to get better is something that God wants to cultivate in his people right now. You see, right now we're having to learn patience as we wait for our scientists to try and figure out a vaccine that can hopefully fight this, the, this virus from being able to spread. And we wait for the day that we know that we're going to be able to come back together again. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And we hold on to this hope that someday things are going to get better. But in reality, we almost take it for granted that it is going to happen at some time. We just don't know when exactly it will be. Now, the reality is that when this coronavirus does pass, though, we're still going to have a broken world. Yes, we'll get back to life as normal in some ways. Yes, people won't have to worry so much about contracting this kind of hidden enemy. But the reality is that people are still going to hurt people. People are still going to feel loneliness even though quarantine is going to end. People are still going to experience death even though the virus might be stopped. And so with this, we know that even as we wait for this, this one form of a broken world to end with coronavirus, we realize that it's just going to continue on in another way. And I don't mean to be depressing with this. I just want to give us a dose of reality. And that while we're, yeah, we're waiting for quarantine to end, what we're really waiting for is something greater and bigger. And this has been a desire in the human heart for as long as humans have been around. And there's been so many different attempts at trying to bring about this utopia and this fixing of all of society's problems. This hope that maybe one day we can actually have a world that doesn't have all of the plagues and the sickness and the death and, and the disparity that we have right now. You see, people have sought uh, solutions to this through education and our world has been much more educated and there's so many good things that have happened from that. But the reality is that as, as educated as people have been, it still hasn't fixed the biggest problems that we have as people. And we still continue to hurt one another. 
You see, some people have said, well, maybe uh, we can fix this through uh, politics or economics. And so it brings about all of these different ideas that we've experimented with as the human race throughout history. Karl Marx, when, when he uh, it came up with this idea of communism and really started to popularize it, believed that this system was going to bring in such an era of utopia for the workers that religion actually wasn't even going to be necessary anymore. He said that religion was the opiate of the people. And that essentially it only existed because the, the working class was so oppressed and had such a bad situation that they needed something to help them keep pressing on in their lives. But his system, communism, would bring in so much prosperity and happiness for them that the need for religion would go away. Well, certainly we've seen that that didn't work. As a matter of fact, communism, instead of, of bringing about utopia, has brought about some of the most repressive and brutal regimes that the world has ever seen. The list could go on and on of the different attempts that, that man has made of trying to build a better world, trying to think that we can do something to, to really restore everything that's going on, but in the end, just failing. And oftentimes trading one kind of brokenness for another. Now, as I was saying, I don't want to be depressing this morning, and I'm not saying that humans can't make any sort of a difference in improving this world. As a matter of fact, I believe that God has called us as the church to be salt and light, and that we need to be a restorative force in this world. Very, very much so. But there's one problem that no matter how well-intentioned we are, no matter how many good ideas we come up with, we're just not going to be able to fix on ourselves. And that's the fact that as human beings, we have a heart problem. You see, we, we have this condition that the Bible calls our flesh. And it's not just talking about uh, the, the bones and, and skin and blood that we have. But it's really this, uh, this desire for sin that resides naturally within all of us. You see, God understands that we have a wicked heart. And the amazing thing is that he still loves us despite this. Look at what God said about um, the, the people through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 17, 9, we see the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord himself, before he flooded the earth in the days of Noah, made this observation saying, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so as God made that observation about man, he actually flooded the earth, essentially starting with a clean slate with Noah. Noah, the most righteous man that lived in that time. But as the earth started to repopulate again, guess what happened? That same broken heart condition was still there. The heart was still desperately sick and wicked and unable to be understood by anyone but God. Just like the prophet Jeremiah was saying. And so we find ourselves in a dilemma, right? Because we want to live in a world that's fixed. We want to have an end to suffering. We, we want to, to see an end to all of these different things that we can look at and say this creation is so broken. Yet, as we look at it, we have to understand that we are major contributors to that brokenness. And as much as we'd like to stand as a third party and say, this is everything I see that's wrong and this is how I'm not contributing it to it and I'm trying to fix it, the reality is we contribute to it more than we would like to admit. 
And so, as I said, while I believe that God can do a transformative work in the heart and and he wants to work through his church, and there is so much that humans can do to make this world a better place, ultimately, the true restoration of all things, the true fix to our problems is going to have to come from someplace outside of us because we've got too much of a problem going on inside of ourselves. And so... We've been going through the book of Revelation as a church this semester, and we're getting near the end of that. This is the second last week, and the book of Revelation is giving us a glimpse into the future. It's showing us uh, a look forward at what God's redemptive plan is for this broken world. And you see, we spent a lot of time early in the semester looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. And we saw there were seven letters to seven real churches, and there was so much that we can learn from the things that they were going through in that time that we can apply to our world today. But after those seven letters, the book of Revelation starts to take a really kind of weird turn in some ways. And we we start to see these really fantastic visions of all sorts of things that are going on in the throne room of heaven. And and, uh, John, the one who wrote this apocalypse, is getting visions of all these fantastic things and these crazy symbols. And these are the things that Revelation is primarily known for. And they've created a lot of dispute within the church. And because it looks at things that are future, we can't quite be as sure about some of the interpretations of every detail. But the major point of Revelation is clear that we see through all of this. And I talked about this back in my introduction sermon to the book of Revelation. And really the message is that Jesus wins in the end. Now, there's so much complexity that we see as we go from point A to B to get to that spot. But the reality that we have to remember as Christians is that Jesus does win in the end. And so my goal for us today is to actually take us a little bit through uh, bridging the gap from where we've been, where we talked about the seven letters and where uh, Kyle just kind of introduced that throne room scene for us and how God was being worshipped for who he is in heaven. And, And then Daniel talked a little bit last week about the scroll that the slain lamb was going to open. And and we're going to talk a lot more about that today. But before we get into that, I just want to pray together. So wherever you are, just bow your heads and pray with me that God will work in our hearts this morning. God, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you have um, saved us. I thank you that you have a plan for redemption. And God, I ask that You'd be with us this morning and just help us to focus in on what you want us to learn from your word. I pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it. And God, we pray that our lives and the lives of those around us would be different because of what we hear and what we apply from your word today. God, give us the ability to focus on what's being said. Give us the ability to to put down our phones and to to get off of the internet or anything else that we might be uh, doing right now that's distracting us and just help us to focus in on what it is that you have to say to us. Uh, We love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, last week Daniel discussed this uh, scroll that was being opened. And I want to just bring us back to the, the throne room of heaven where this takes place. In Revelation 4, 1-2, I said there's a, a turn that starts to happen. And what it is, is we go from a place where uh, there's these seven churches that are getting seven letters that are, uh, that are speaking to contemporary situations 
And their, their eyes start to be turned towards, hey, these are the things that have to come and take place. This is what we read in Revelation 4, 1 to 2. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and, the one, and one sitting on the throne. Now, as I mentioned, Kyle preached about that awe of everybody that's surrounding and, and praising God there in that throne room of heaven. And Daniel talked about this scroll. And there's this scroll that's, that's brought out, and John starts to weep. And he weeps because there's nobody in heaven and earth that's found that's able to open this scroll. And he weeps because he wants this scroll to be opened. Why? Because as Daniel mentioned last week, this scroll contains God's redemptive plan for the world. And John, just like you and I, wants to see the brokenness of this world go away. He wants to see God's redemption come and to have everything actually be fully restored. And yet, we see here that nobody can be found who's worthy to open this scroll. But finally, there's one of the elders uh, lifts up John's head. He tells him, hey, don't keep crying. There's one that's actually able to open the scroll. The lamb that was slain is able to open the scroll. And Daniel talked about that. How uh, Jesus is this lamb that was slain. And because he was slain for our sins, he, what that was was he died on the cross, which was the central part of God's redemption of the earth. You see, God knows that the, the earth is sinful and broken. And, and even things like the flood of Noah, even that still could not cleanse the wickedness of human beings. The only thing that would work would be that God himself would take on flesh and live as a man. And as he died on the cross, he would actually take the guilt of all of our sin upon himself. And as he was slain for our sins, that all the punishment that was due to us was put upon him. And that because of that, we could be forgiven of our sins because God is righteous and he has justly punished our sins on a substitute that was Jesus Christ. And the perfect life of Jesus Christ is transferred to us. And now we're no longer seen as sinful and dirty, but we're made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And this is the central point in God's plan for redemption. And this is why only the Lamb is able to open this scroll that's going to set everything else in motion to the end of time. And so the Lamb comes and he breaks the first of the seven seals on the scroll. And we start to get a picture of what's to come. Now this is interesting. Remember, this is a scroll that we wanted to be opened. John was weeping, said no one could open it. So you're expecting glorious and wonderful things to come out of this scroll, right? This is God's plan for redemption for the earth. Well, the first thing that comes out of the scroll, actually, after the first seal is broken, is kind of surprising. We actually see that the, the first thing it releases a horse. A rider on a white horse that comes out to conquer. And then the second seal is broken. And it releases another horseman. And, and this second horseman comes and he takes peace from the earth. And then a third seal is broken. And a third horseman comes. And, and this third horseman is one that brings about scarcity of resources. And the fourth seal is broken. And the fourth horseman comes out. And this is one that brings about death and pestilence. And you're seeing all this and you're thinking, whoa, this is, 
This is a scroll that maybe would have been better not opened. Like, I thought this was, was going to be something that was good, yet here we see horsemen after horsemen after horsemen that's bringing death, destruction, and pain upon the earth. What's going on here? Doesn't that seem confusing? That with the breaking of each seal, things actually seem to be getting worse. The fifth seal was broken. And with this, we start to get a clue of what's going on here. We read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So with the fifth seal being opened of this scroll, we see that it's the martyrs crying out for justice. God, how long will it be until you avenge our blood? And as I said, this starts to give us an idea of why all of this needs to happen. We see that for God's true redemption of the earth to take place, that a judgment of wickedness has to happen first. See, I'm a student of history. I love studying historical events. And one of the events that I've studied the most is World War II. I find it absolutely fascinating about the way the world was so dramatically changed by the events that happened during that time. And it was an absolutely terrible event. One of the worst things that's ever really happened, at least in modern history. The World War II saw the deaths of about 70 million people. Which is crazy. That's larger than most countries in the entire world today. About 70 million people perished as a result of all of the things that happened in World War II. And the world was absolutely torn apart by it. Now, as the war started to draw to a close and, and the Allies saw that they were going to win, they realized <coughs> that something had to be done to bring justice upon Nazi Germany, who was the aggressor that started uh, all of the events that, that you could clearly say was responsible for triggering at least all of the things that started to happen in the European theater of war. And as the war started to draw to a close, the Allies started to learn more and more about the extent of just how much Nazi Germany was guilty of. And it's not only did they start a war that started to tear the world apart, but that they had been uh, running these, these death camps that I'm sure you're all familiar with. That were literally designed for the systematic extermination of an entire race of human beings. And as the Allies started to close in on, on the Nazis and uncover more and more evidence of these atrocities, it only increased the resolve that some sort of justice had to be meted out for the Nazis even after the war ended. And so the rebuilding of the world couldn't really commence until the Nazis faced justice. And this is what brought about the Nuremberg Trials. Nuremberg trials were uh, trials that happened shortly after the war where all of the Nazi high leaders that were still left that hadn't died or hadn't committed suicide were, were sat before an international court and they were tried for their crimes. And the reason was because the world understood that somebody needed to execute justice for the people that were responsible for orchestrating the Holocaust. Justice had to be served in order for peace to come.
And this, in as many ways, is the same thing that we're seeing being played out in Revelation. Of course, this is a more perfect justice. And of course, I understand in World War II that there was a lot of guilt and bloodshed and, and things on both sides. But the reality is that uh, there was a very clear, uh, primarily guilty party and they needed to be punished. Well, here as God's justice starts to be meted out, it's going to be perfect. And everybody who's guilty is going to have to pay for their sins. And we'll see that more as we go on. The sixth seal is then opened after the cry of these martyrs that we see with the fifth seal. And as the sixth seal is opened, the sun goes black, the stars fall from the sky, uh, the earth shakes, the people of the earth try to run and hide as they are terrified about what they now see is coming. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 6 verses 16 to 17. The people of the earth are crying, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? There are a great number of people that this includes. The, the text says that this includes everyone from kings to slaves that are running and trying to find some way to escape the wrath of the Lamb. Now, we see, though, that there's also another group we're introduced to right after this that has a very different reaction when the sixth seal is broken. While most of the world is running and trying to hide themselves in rocks and, and actually asking even for the rocks to fall on them because they're so terrified of the judgment that will come from God, there's another group that actually has a very different reaction. We see instead that this group is praising God, that they're standing before his throne and worshiping him. And we're told who these people are. In Revelation 7, 14, we read that these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So you see, there's two very different groups at the time that judgment comes here as the sixth the seal of this scroll is broken. There's one group that realizes they are guilty and that judgment is coming upon them. There's another group instead that's worshiping that's standing before God, that loves his presence. And the difference between these groups is that one has been washed in the blood of the lamb and the other has not. And this makes all the difference in the way that they react to God and his judgment. So after we see this protected group of worshipers in the midst of God's terrifying judgment, the seventh seal of the scroll is opened. And with this seventh seal, it actually brings us to seven trumpets. That, that are sounded. And with each trumpet, it brings about similar kinds of things that the seals were bringing about. More destruction, more judgment, more wrath on the world. And at the end of the, the seven trumpets, there's also seven bowls that are poured out, that are uh, pour, angels pouring out God's wrath upon the earth. You see this uh, sequence happening over and over again. And then finally, as the seventh bowl is poured out, there's a loud voice from heaven that proclaims, it is done. And we see that finally we're drawing near the end of this absolutely terrifying process of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. And from here, John is given a view to the specific destruction of a few different groups. There's Because I've had to cover a broad range of material today, I haven't been able to get into every single symbol. I'm trying to cover about 15 chapters of the book of Revelation here uh, this morning. But I do want to slow down a little bit and look at uh, one of the symbols in particular that, that we're going to see the specific judgment uh, 
kind of drawn out a little bit more on. And this is the symbol of, of Babylon. You see, one symbol that John's used in this book is the city of Babylon. Babylon uh, was a great power in biblical times, primarily back in uh, old, some Old Testament times. They were the power that had taken Judah into captivity. But by this point that John was writing this, Babylon was no longer a world power. Rome was the world power. <clears throat> but I don't think that uh, Babylon is, is specifically referring to the ancient city of Babylon here. <clears throat> I think instead that as John uses this term Babylon in Revelation, it's simply representative of a great world power that's prideful, that's arrogant, that's sinful, and that's immoral. And so, sure, it, it would have been a fitting description of Babylon in the time of the Old Testament, but it was a fitting description of Rome in his day. And I believe it's a fitting description of many, many, many other societies that have come and very well may still come. Frankly, I think it's a fitting description of our own society here in the United States. Now, we see here there's, there's a powerful uh, judgment that's pronounced against this city of Babylon. This city that was a great power, it essentially um, it represented the, the, the epitome of human strength. As a matter of fact, even if you go all the way back to Genesis, there's this story about the Tower of, of Babel. And this is where the people gathered together trying to build a tower all the way up to heaven as a, as a testimony to their own greatness. And, it, and so I believe that this city of Babylon is representative of human pride, human arrogance, human sinfulness and rebellion against God. This is everything that's wrapped up in this city. And we see here, after the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out, we're shown the condition of this great city. I'm going to read at length here for a little bit out of Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven and having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion of her and the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. I was in tears last night 
as I meditated on this passage. And the reason is because as I saw the guilt of Babylon, I saw my own guilt and my own participation in the sins of the great city. I saw that I'm a participant in her sexual immorality. You know, Jesus said that if you even look after a woman with lust, that it's like committing adultery with her. And just as, as Babylon's uh, sins are heaped high as heaven, I saw my own sin there. I'm a participant in her greed and luxurious living. I see that Babylon lived in comfort. They were oppressor. They, they, they thought that they had everything they need. They looked to their own material wealth for their strength. And I think, how guilty are we of that here in the United States? How guilty am I of luxurious living as I live in comfort while people around the world starve and die of present, preventable diseases and lack of access to clean water? I participate in her pride. Her prideful attitude covered absolutely everything that she did. She didn't think she needed God. She didn't look to Him for provision. She didn't look to Him for direction. And she lived her life in constant rebellion against Him. And while I look at my life and I say, Yeah, I want to be obedient to the Lord and I strive to do that in many ways, I still see the pride of Babylon in my heart. So as I said, I was in tears last night meditating just about the fact that I'm, I'm guilty of the sins of Babylon as a resident there. And, and I see that as judgment is coming upon her, that God is calling his people to come out of this city. In verse 4 he says, come out of her. Come out of her lest you participate in her sins. Lest you participate in our plagues. So brothers and sisters, I think that we have a call as people that, as Christians, we need to come out of Babylon. And I don't think that means we need to move out of the United States. I don't think this is about a physical location. But rather when we're called to come out of Babylon, I think that he's, he's getting at the fact that we need to be people that no longer participate in the sins of this city. As Christians, we're called to be people that are countercultural. Our, our lives should look different from the city of Babylon that we live in. And too often they don't. Too often there's no discernible difference between the life of a Christian and those that are around them. You've probably heard plenty of studies that, that talk about this. Things that show that, for example, the divorce rate amongst Christians, or at least people that proclaim to be Christians, is the same as those that, that don't. Yet we serve a God that says that he hates divorce. And that marriage is a joining of, of two becoming one. And that what God has joined may man not separate. We see that we should be people that are, are different in our sexual behavior. That we won't buy into the lies of the world. And the way that it, it has such a consumeristic mindset about sex. And that is something that's, that's freely given and taken outside of marriage. That people swap partners and, and choose any kind of partner that they desire. This is something that we're called to come out of. 
We're to be people of compassion and generosity. This is one of the areas where I think that maybe the indictment is strongest. Do we really care more about the poor than the, the city that we live in? What are we doing to actually help people that are in great need in our own communities and all around the world? Church, we, we live in one of the wealthiest countries and one of the wealthiest times that has ever been on this planet. And I think, are we really being stewards of the resources that God has given us and the way that he has called us to? And guys, don't, don't get me wrong, I, I'm speaking here as a man that's convicted by the word of God. I'm not saying I have all this together. Matter of fact, I said I felt quite a bit of conviction about this in my own life just even yesterday as I was, was studying and putting this together. The reality is we are supposed to be people that love our neighbors like we love ourselves. Are we doing that? Or are we more like Babylon living in luxury? Are we willing to sacrifice for people where, where others aren't? Are we will, do our lives marked by humility and sacrifice? Or do we look more similar to the pride of Babylon? Are everything down to even our entertainment choices they're so similar to the world. We fill our minds with all the same filth that the world fills their minds with. And we glorify and support all of these kind of things just the same. And so I see this call for God's people to come out of Babylon and that it's a timely call for us as Christians. Are we going to heed it? Are we going to continue in the ways that we always have and continue to participate in her sins? I don't want to live for the same things that Babylon does. God hasn't called us to live that way. You see, one of the things that is spoken about in Revelation that I haven't been able to get to yet is just this idea of the mark of the beast. It's something most people have heard about, the 666, and there's all sorts of uh, debate about what that mark is and, and where it's given. And I, I don't think it's so much a physical mark as it is a, uh, a mark of the life where the mind and the actions are sold out to the activities of Satan and rebellion against God. You see, it talks about the mark of the beast, 666, being on the head and on the hand. And I think about our thoughts and our actions. And the, the reality is, are our thoughts and actions captive to God? Do they represent the, the idea that, no, we, will, we are going to be people that reject the mark of the beast? Or do we go along with the rest of the world? You see, there's sacrifice that's involved either way. When the mark of the beast is spoken about in Revelation, it says that anyone who doesn't receive this actually has a really high, hard time buying and selling. It's hard for them to participate in the economy. In many ways, it makes it difficult for them to participate in the culture. Life is hard for the one that rejects the mark of the beast. But later, when judgment comes... We'll see that those that accepted the mark of the beast sold out their eternity for their short-term gain. And may we not be people whose choices are based more on the, the short-term things that we want to gain in this world without thinking about the lives that God wants us to live as people that reflect his eternal kingdom. Guys, Revelation is a very, very convicting book. It's not just a message about dragons and beasts 
and angels and demons. God has a very strong message for his church. That we're to be people of purity. That live in a corrupt culture. People that desire to follow him with all that we are. And that persevere in that. And even as we saw the seven letters when we started this series, we saw that message over and over and over again that each church faced challenges, but it was called to persevere in the face of them and to remain faithful to God. And so, just as I said at the beginning of this sermon, we're waiting for this coronavirus to pass. We're, we're waiting for, for the end of this struggle. But the reality is there's a much deeper uh, plague and a much deeper struggle that we're waiting for the end of. And Revelation gives us a picture to that. And as we see what's going to happen, it gives us strength to persevere and to say, yes, I'm not going to live as a citizen of Babylon. I'm going to live as a citizen of heaven. And so Babylon is judged. Babylon's also called a prostitute here, represented as a prostitute in the book of Revelation. And right after we see the smoke of her rising up in Re Revelation chapter 18 and Revelation chapter 19, we're introduced to the bride of Christ, who's invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the bride is, is the church. It's the people of God that have been made pure by the blood of the Lamb and come to him in clean garments. Now, right after we see this wedding supper image, though, we see that destruction and wrath still isn't quite fully finished yet. And so at the end of Revelation 19, we see that there's an army that's gathered uh, to, to make war against God. And there's a rider on a white horse that comes out of heaven and his robe is dipped in blood and a sword comes from his mouth. And this rider has a name, it's, it's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and this is Jesus. And he comes and he slays all of those that have opposed him with the sword that comes out of his mouth. And the beast and the false prophet, which are, are agents of Satan that are spoken of in the book of Revelation, are taken and they're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And Satan is taken and he's thrown into a bottomless pit where he will be locked for a thousand years. Now, there's a lot of uh, different opinions within Christianity about what happens during these thousand years. It's something called the millennium. And it's probably one of the most disputed things amongst Christians that agree on almost all other areas of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20 is one of the only parts of the Bible, the only passage in the Bible that speaks explicitly and clearly about this thousand years. And so there's a lot of different interpretations as to what people think is going on with it. I'm not going to get into all of those right now, just for the sake of time and because it can get pretty detailed. But uh, I will be making a video with some other things related to end times questions that I'll be posting as a link in the next sermon that I preach. So if you're interested in that, keep an eye out for that. I'll make sure to get that out. But what we do know here is, is that Revelation 20 is saying Satan is, is chained, he's thrown into the abyss, he's bound for a thousand years. But we see that he is going to make one last return, and this is what we see in Revelation chapter 20. Starting at verse 7, it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. 
but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is Satan's final defeat. The deceiver of old. The one that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, that's led a rebellion against God, has finally come and made one last attempt in making war against him, and he's been utterly defeated. And at this point, he's not just thrown into an abyss and locked there, but he's thrown into a lake of fire that is a place of eternal torment and suffering. <clears throat> this is important for us to understand. Satan is not the king of hell. Matter of fact, hell is a place of torment, <clears throat> that is designed for him. And he, it says he's going there. He's not going there as a ruler. He's going there to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is the defeat of our ancient foe. But the reality is that at this point, even though Satan has been dealt with, God's judgment is still not yet complete. There's still one more group that needs to be judged. Yes, Babylon has fallen. Yes, Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire and the beast and the false prophet. And, and all of these, these forces have been done away with. But there's one last group that still remains guilty of sin. And the reality is that that group is human beings. You see, Scripture speaks consistently of the reality that a day is coming when God will judge all of us. Both in Old and New Testament we see this. Daniel 12, 2 says... And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. John 5, 28-29, this is Jesus speaking. It says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We see Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's plenty of passages that I could go to to keep showing you the way that God has promised a day that the dead will be, rise, will be raised so that they will be judged. But I think that you get the point by now. This is how the scene plays out here in Revelation chapter 20. Starting at verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is a terrifying passage because what we see is the lake of fire, the place of torment day and night for eternity the place that the, the beast and the false prophet and Satan himself have been thrown, that this is actually the same destination that everyone ends up in, whose name is not written in the book of life. 
So as, as the dead, both great and small, this picture, John's showing everybody, it doesn't matter from, from kings to peasants, great and small are all standing here before the throne of God to be judged. And every deed that they've done is recorded in these books. And they're judged according to what they've done. Now, you might find this interesting that judgment here is happening according to what they've done. Because as Christians, we consistently preach this gospel of, of us being saved by faith and not by our works. Yet, in every passage, the, the three passages I showed you before, the great white throne passage, and then this one here in Revelation as well, we've seen some sort of reference to the idea that people are judged by their works. So how do we reconcile that with the, the message of the gospel that says that, that we're saved by our faith and not by our works? Well, there's a few ideas that people have on, on what's going on here. Some people believe that standing before the great white throne, it's, it's only people that are non-believers. And because all the believers have already been resurrected at the beginning of the millennium. Uh, I, I disagree with that stance just because I, when I read the, the text on the millennium, uh, I, I don't think it's clear that everybody, or that all believers are necessarily raised at that time. And also, as I see the, the great white throne scene here, it really, the, the language seems to encompass that everybody is going to have to come before this. And so I believe that both believers and non-believers are standing here before the great white throne of God to be judged. And we see that they're judged by their works. Now, here's what I think is important now. Yes, the believers are, are judged by what they have done. And I think that what's going on with them is that there is reward that happens for the things that we've done in the body. Uh, Jesus talks about storing up treasures for yourselves in heaven. There's plenty of other biblical passages that talk about this idea that, although I don't understand it, there seems to be some sort of idea of heavenly reward. And so there's a possibility that that's part of what's going on here for the believers. Um, they will be rewarded, I believe, for the good things that they've done. But I do not believe that they'll be condemned. You see, even though their books may account of, of lots of, of sins or whatever they've done, I don't know if those have just been blotted out completely and they're not there recorded in the books, or if they're still there recorded in the books, but they're not going to be uh, pronounced as guilty. One thing I do know is that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's a biblical promise, and we see that over and over again, that we can have the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And this is why, even as we read this great white throne scene, that you'll notice that while it says that everyone is judged according to what they've done, that's not actually what makes the difference in where they go. You see, there's another book that was mentioned there, which is the book of life. It says books were opened, and then another book was there, and it's the book of life. And we see that the only thing that actually made a difference for whether you ended up in the lake of fire or not is whether or not your name was written in the book of life. It doesn't say anything about uh, if your ledger of good deeds outweighed the bad ones in the, in the books that you get to escape the lake of fire. No, there's one thing. And it's whether or not your name is written in the book of life. And so the only one that escapes this judgment the only one that escapes the fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels is the one whose name is written in the book of life. How? That's an important question then, right? How does one have their name written in the book of life? 
Well, Jesus tells us this. It's probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One's name is written in the book of life through faith in Christ. As I mentioned earlier, it's the blood of the Lamb that washes us. And that even though we have sin after sin after sin that's piled up amongst us as we've been residents and participants in the sin of Babylon, the only way that that is wiped out and taken care of as we're forgiven is because of the blood of the Lamb, the very one that was able to open this scroll to commence this process in the first place. He has accomplished redemption for his people. And he has given us the opportunity to move from the death that we deserve and the punishment that we deserve and the destruction of all that is evil to move into being forgiven, to become children of God and to share in his eternal kingdom. And I'm going to preach about that eternal kingdom next week. But as we draw to a close today, I want you to make sure that you're ready. We don't know when this day is going to come, but Jesus said that his return was going to be like a thief in the night and that he was going to come at an hour that we don't expect. If you're watching this today, I don't know how much time you have. Matter of fact, I'm recording this for all I know. Jesus is going to come back before this ever even has the opportunity to be shown. But here's what I do know. God has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sin and to be brought into his kingdom. And so there are some implications that we have. How, how can we apply everything that we've learned this morning about the coming judgment and destruction of evil? There's just four things I would say. First, you need to make sure that you're ready. Are you a person that's covered in the blood of the Lamb? Is your name written in the book of life? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin? If you haven't done that or if you're not sure if you've done that, then we would love to talk with you about that. I know that we're separated physically, but there's still a way that you can contact us. In the info for this video, there's a link for how you can email us. I'm going to actually be monitoring that even as uh, this sermon is going on. And if you want somebody to pray with you, I will be having my out, eyes out for that. And either me or somebody else in the church will, will call you and discuss what it means to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. The other thing I think that we need to do is we need to be ready. We, we, we need to help others be ready. The, the, the reality is we don't want those that we love. We don't want anyone to have to experience the lake of fire. Matter of fact, neither does God. You see, when, when Jesus describes the lake of fire in one of the Gospels, he, he calls it the fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, Satan is beyond uh, redemption. Jesus didn't die for the sins of Satan, but he did die for the sins of man. And the reality is he does not want you to share in the same fate as the serpent and the beast. But that depends on whether or not you come to him in faith. And so I would urge you as a good friend, to, to, as a good family member, whatever, to go and to tell people about this and to help them realize the reality of impending judgment that is coming, that they would be saved and that they would enter into eternal life with Christ. Another implication of the fact that God's judgment is coming is the fact that we can be people who forgive and that trust in the righteous judgment of God. You see, as God promises that he is going to punish all evil, this allows us to be people that actually live with the ethic of forgiveness that Jesus teaches us to. 
Because we realize that vengeance is not ours. And we don't need to be the people that execute vengeance. Because we realize that one day God is going to do that and he is going to do it perfectly. So if you have been terribly harmed, I don't discount your pain. God knows your pain and he will punish the one that did it. Unless they repent. And if they repent and come to faith in Christ, then their, then their sin was punished on the cross. But either way, their sin was punished. But this allows us to be a people that truly forgive and are released of the burdens that we carry. And we see that we're actually able to experience the joy and progress in life that Jesus wants us to have as people that live abundantly. And finally, I think that we need to be people that see life with a bigger lens. People that see life not just in, in terms of what am I going to do today or tomorrow or in the next year, but how am I going to live in light of eternity? I spoke earlier about the difference between those that received the mark of the beast and those that did not. You see, if you live just for this world, then receiving the mark of the beast and buying into all of the sins of Babylon and everything that this world has to offer makes all the sense in the world. But if you live in light of eternity and you realize that, that God Almighty reigns and a day is coming when he will judge and that all the sins of all that have ever been committed, people will be held accountable for. If you realize that, if you realize that you're going somewhere for eternity, then every decision that you make should be in light of that. And we can be people that no longer live for this world, but that live for him. And we, the, the teaching that Jesus gives us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him starts to make more sense. And the things of this world that are transitory and are passing away become less and less important. And the things of God, living in righteousness and, and helping bring restoration and, and preaching his gospel message to others starts to become so much more important. So as we think about the reality of the fact that judgment is coming, and frankly, that as, as terrible as that is in some ways, it's actually a good thing because the judgment of God is what brings about the restoration of all things that we so deeply desire. So friends, may we be people that long for that restoration, that pray for that restoration, and that prepare for that. May we come to Christ in faith, knowing that he is, is a worthy sacrifice, the slain lamb is worthy. That we can come to him and be forgiven of our sin. We can have our name written in the book of life. That we can be invited into his kingdom. And that we can walk with him for eternity. And as we wait for that day of redemption, just as the martyrs waited and cried out when the fifth seal was broken, may we be people that wait patiently and that live as good kingdom citizens in the interim. I love you guys. I want to pray with you. God, we thank you that you are good and that you are going to bring about the restoration of all things. God, we know that your judgment is righteous and we pray that uh, you would prepare us and that you would prepare this world for it, that there would be great repentance that comes. That many of us would, would come out of the city of Babylon, that we would no longer participate in its sins. God, that we would come and have, have our robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. That we would be that bride that's made clean and invited to the wedding supper. God, we look forward to the day that you restore all things. But God, as we wait, we pray that you would help us to be good citizens of your kingdom that live in this world. We love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.